Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist, an undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 6. As an undergraduate student, you will have the opportunity to take many different classes, some of which will be very useful for your research endeavors. In part one, I talk about some of the most useful classes that I've taken that have helped me with my research and what specifically from those courses I have found most meaningful. In part two, I finally share some of the results that I found for this week regarding TDCS and verbal working memory and talk about future steps for my data analysis. So without further ado, let's discuss. So in part one, let's discuss about some of the most useful classes that I have personally taken that have helped me with my research. Now, caveat to this, these are all going to be classes related to scientific research. Of course, for humanities, it's a different subset of classes. So let's start with by far what I believe is the most useful class for any sort of scientific research, and that is statistics. Statistics is like the language of research. It allows us to understand numerical trends and data so that we can interpret our results. Within statistics, there are a couple of very useful concepts that you will need. First is by far the most important, which is the t-test. And the t-test allows us to understand differences between two different data sets. So let's say that we wanted to compare the difference between Boston and LA. And specifically, we wanted to see if there is a temperature difference between these two cities. Then we can conduct a t-test where one of our data sets is the year-round temperature of Boston and the other data set is the year-round temperature for LA. And via a t-test, we can tell whether there is something called a statistically significant difference between the temperature of these two cities. So if we have more than two cities, however, we would want to use something called an ANOVA test. An ANOVA test is exactly like a t-test. However, it allows us to compare differences between more than two groups, so three or more groups. An ANOVA allows us to see if there is a difference between those. Next is a chi-squared test, and a chi-squared test serves multiple different purposes, one of which is to see if there is a difference between an observed data set and an expected data set. But another use case of chi-squared would be to see if there is a difference in the variation between two data sets. By that, I mean, do the individual data points differ from the mean? And a chi-squared allows us to see whether that variation or the variance differs between two data sets. Next is a linear regression. A linear regression allows us to see whether there is a linear function of an dependent variable on an independent variable. So let's say that we wanted to see whether there's any sort of correlation between the average temperature in Boston and, let's say, the total amount of pollution by number of cars on the freeway every day. Then we can plot on on an XY coordinate where Y represents the temperature and X represents the number of cars on the freeway. We can plot individual points based on those parameters and see whether we can plot a line or a trend line on that plot to see if there's any sort of correlation between uh, temperature and average number of cars with a linear regression. And finally, our probability distributions. There are many different types of probability distributions, such as normal distribution, Poisson distribution, or binomial distribution, but a probability distribution tells us the probability of an event happening based on um, certain independent variables. So it can tell us, for example, the probability that our temperature in Boston will be 75 degrees based on the number of cars on the freeway in that day. 
probability models help us understand the world around us better. And that allows us to visualize trends in our data as well. So those are some of the most useful concepts that we have for statistics. Of course, with different types of research, you will encounter more and more statistical tests and analyses that you can do. But these are the fundamental ones that I have found that have helped me most with my research. All right, the next most useful class that you will take probably is computer science and more specifically data science. Now, data science is allowing us to understand trends and understand information and extract that information from really noisy data. So within data science, there are a couple of important concepts that we will need. First is data extraction, which allows us to extract data specifically based on a filter. So let's say going back to our temperature example, we only want to pick out days in which the temperature is greater than 75 degrees. Then we can put in the filter of temperature greater than 75 degrees, and that will only give us the days in our data that in which the temperature matches that criteria. Next, of course, we want our statistical model. We want to be able to do statistical tests in a very easy manner. So maybe we uh, put in one line of code and that gives us our statistical test and the results from that test. And finally, we want to do data visualization with data science, and that is doing various different plots to determine trends in our data. And those plots can range from scatter plots, box plots, histograms, etc. I would say the three most useful languages for data science are MATLAB, R, and Python. In academia research settings, you'll most likely see MATLAB. I'd say MATLAB is a very versatile language. It allows you to load in data very easily. It has built-in libraries for machine learning, visualization, and fitting statistical models. And MATLAB is also very suited to very niche areas of research. For neuroimaging research, for example, MATLAB allows us to load in nifty files and edit nifty files, which are the uh, files specifically to view brain images. I'd say for if you want to specifically do statistical testing and do a variety of statistical testing, as, as niche of a statistical test as you want, R is probably the language to go because it's the most powerful for statistical tests and allows you to do them the fastest. And if you really want to go into machine learning and visualization, I'd say Python probably has the best libraries for that. But you really can't go wrong with any three of these languages, MATLAB, R, and Python. All right, what is another useful class I've taken? Well, linear algebra. I want to tell you that linear algebra is so important, I really mean it, because any sort of science really can be modeled with linear algebra. Linear algebra concerns the study of vectors and matrices. Now, a vector is an array of numbers. So it's not just one number, it's an array of numbers. And matrix or matrices are arrays of vectors. And oftentimes what we see is that data is often vectorized or put in a matrix. So for example, going back to neuroimaging with nifty files, nifty files are a matrix. They essentially are a 3D representation of the brain where every voxel or entry in that matrix is a value that represents specific brain activity. So we can model the brain using a matrix and linear algebra allows us to perform analyses on matrices and vectors. So they allow us to understand the data in that matrix, which allows us to understand how the brain is interacting to certain events. And that's with linear algebra. Linear algebra is also the backbone behind linear regressions, as we talked about earlier. So if you really want to understand trends in data and do different types of regressions, you really want to understand linear algebra. 
And finally, linear algebra has a concept known as eigenvalues and eigenvectors, which are crucial for something called dimensionality reduction. What this means is, let's say, yeah, you have multiple different variables you want to consider. So in order to predict the temperature of Boston, for example, we have multiple different variables, such as the number of cars on the road, number of people outside, number of active factories, the amount of, amount of uh, pollution, amount of precipitation, etc. Let's say you have thousands upon thousands of different variables. It's not very efficient to analyze how each one of those variables correlates with our dependent variable or temperature. But what we can do is we can reduce the dimensionality of our data set. So instead of a thousand variables, we can try to find patterns and interactions between those different variables so that we reduce 1,000 different variables to, so let's say, 10 different variables. And then we can see how those 10 different variables correlate with the uh, average temperature in Boston, which is much more feasible to do than like 10,000 different variables. And the concept behind dimensionality reduction really is eigenvalues and eigenvectors. And finally, the most useful class that I've taken that is very, very underrated in my opinion is physics. And physics really allows us to understand the world around us better. It allows us to understand how things are at rest, how things are in motion, and how things will respond to different stimulus based upon the laws of physics. And really, if you understand physics, then you go beyond just a superficial understanding of science. You go to understanding science on an almost atomic level. And that really allows you to understand science and really appreciate it as a whole. So a prime example of how physics have popped up in my research for neuroimaging is actually based upon how MRI and MEG function in the first place. MRI, what we're doing is we're inducing an electrical or, or we're inducing a magnetic stimulus to the different protons in our brain and seeing how that proton changes orientation. And that has to do with magnetism and electricity, which is very important for physics. And as I alluded to in my first episode, the magnetic fields that MEG pick up, that really relies on the concept of physics as well. For example, the electric current given by our, by our right thumb, if we curl our fingers around it via the right-hand rule, which is a concept in physics, we get that magnetic field. Right. So really understanding physics helps us allow, helps us understand how the world around us interacts and that allows us to gain a much deeper understanding about science and research. This is part two of the Lab Life podcast where I discuss my weekly updates with research at the Boystown National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. Now, if you remember from last episode, we talked about beamforming, which allowed me to localize specific sources of neural activity to see where in the brain exactly neural activity was most active at different stages of the working memory. So once we have beamformed, the first part of this week, what I mostly did was identify outliers for beamforming. So the beamforming algorithm can go haywire a lot of times when someone moves too much, if they accidentally bang their head against the MEG, if there's too much uh, magnetic artifacts from outside of the room, etc. And we really need to correct for those outliers with beamforming. And I did that mostly with visual inspection. There are certain patterns that you can see among the beamforming data that are very, very indicative of it being an outlier. And when you're doing your statistical analysis, you don't want these outliers to cloud the rest of your data. So a lot of what I did this week was actually visually looking for outliers in the beamforming data. But once I did that, I was able to come up with very clean pictures for brain activity in the encoding and in the maintenance phase for uh, working memory, and specifically within the alpha band. 
I also tried localizing some theta activity in the brain for encoding. And the reason why I did this is because there are many papers that are out there that corroborate that theta is very important for executive function, specifically top-down executive function. And that means that the theta activation in our frontal lobe, which is specifically around 327 hertz, that, that, that theta activation is important for helping our brain determine what exactly to focus on and helping our brain recruit the neural circuits that are important for actually encoding and maintaining working memory data. Um, and it was pretty unfortunate that I didn't actually find a lot of theta activity. At least if I did find some theta activity, it was not very clean. So what I might try doing next week is instead of looking from 3 to 7 hertz for theta, I might look for around 2 to 5 hertz for theta. I'm not completely sure if this is going to work or not, but the reason for that is because 3 to 7 hertz will include a lot of alpha activity, and that makes my theta noise that makes my theta data very noisy so i might try to lower that window a little bit from two to six hertz or two to five hertz just to try to isolate theta a little more but i definitely want to look for theta activity because again it's so important for just the top-down functioning the executive functioning that makes working memory work in the first place all right so once I've localized some of the alpha encoding and alpha maintenance activity i want to be able to compare how the alpha differs between the three conditions, TDCS on the left parietal lobe, on the right parietal lobe, and the sham condition. So there are a couple of different statistical tests that I ran that helped me determine this difference. The first is a whole brain ANOVA. And as I talked about earlier, an ANOVA allows us me to see whether three data sets, three or more data sets are different. So in this case, I do have three data sets, right? I have the um, parietal right stimulation, parietal left stimulation, and sham. So what this whole brain ANOVA means is that I go voxel by voxel in the brain, and on every voxel of the brain, I run an ANOVA test to see if the neural activity for um, that voxel for a specific condition, whether that's left, right, or sham, differs. And for the whole brain ANOVA, the idea is that when I run this, I will localize specific voxels in the brain in which the um, neural activity differed between the three different conditions. And unfortunately, I didn't find too much when I did whole brain ANOVAs. I did find a little bit, though. What I found was that in the very beginning of the encoding phase, around the first 400 milliseconds of the encoding phase, and remember the encoding phase in total is around two seconds, so in the first one-fifth of the encoding phase, let's say. I found that there was a slight difference in encoding in the right superior frontal lobe. And I found that with there was a stronger alpha activation when we did um, TDCS on the left parietal lobe versus the right parietal lobe and sham. I found that specifically the stronger activation in alpha was localized to the right superior frontal lobe. And I don't exactly know what this means. The reason is because when we think of verbal working memory, we mostly think of the left side of the brain, right? The left side of the brain contains the supermarginal gyrus that's important for phonological looping. It contains the Broca's area, which is responsible for verbal production. It contains Wernicke's area, which is responsible for verbal comprehension. There's nothing really that's in the right side of the brain. I'd say that's really responsible for verbal working memory, but in this case, we did find a very strong difference in the right superior frontal lobe, which is a little bit strange, so I'll have to do some more in-depth look into what that actually means. Maybe 
TDCS is doing something a little bit weird to the right side of the brain that we don't know about. And for some reason, the connection between the right and left side of the brain is changed because of that increased right activation. And that somehow impacts verbal working memory. But I'm going to have to do some more analysis and reading some more papers about that. So those are the results from the whole brain ANOVAs. Next, what I did was I extracted something called peak voxels. What peak voxels are, are they're individual voxels in which the activity of that voxel during a specific stage of working memory is stronger than the activity of surrounding voxels. And what peak voxels tell us is that that individual area of the brain is more active than other areas. It's, it's one voxel, so it's very, very small. Uh, for reference, a voxel is only four millimeters by four millimeters by four millimeters. It's a very small area of the brain, but peak voxels allow us to find areas of the brain in which there is peak activation. So I, I did some peak voxel analysis and identified very peak points of interest for verbal working memory and specifically clusters of the brain that stand out compared to its neighbors. And there were several important peaks that I found, actually. In the encoding phase of working memory, I found that there are peaks in both the left and the right lateral occipital cortex. This is expected because the, the lateral occipital cortex on both sides are important for higher visual processing. So really, uh, uh, they, they go beyond the primary visual cortex, and they really allow us to understand what it is that we're exactly seeing. Another really interesting thing that I found was that there are in the encoding phase, there was a peak in the left precentral gyrus. And this is also really interesting because the left precentral gyrus is close to Broca's area. It's not exactly there, but it's close. So there might be something related to um, phonological looping or verbal production there with that left precentral peak. And finally, I also found a bunch of right hemisphere peaks. And going back to the whole right superior frontal thing, um, this is a little bit strange. I don't exactly know why there are so many peaks in the right hemisphere. Specifically, there are peaks in the right superior frontal and the right middle frontal gyrus, um, which are just like the top of the brain on the right side and the, the center of the brain on the right side or the middle of the brain on the right side. It's, it's a little bit strange why exactly there are peaks in these areas, especially because they're right dominated. Um, but I'm trying to look more into that because Potentially that can give us some sort of insight between how the right brain interacts with the left brain and how that interaction helps us with verbal working memory. So this could be something really interesting and I have to look into that a little more. And then in the maintenance area, the maintenance region for working memory, I also found several really interesting peaks. So there's also the left and right occipital areas. Those are also peaks. And as I talked about in a previous episode, that makes sense because with maintenance, we're trying to block out all other visual activity. And we do that mostly in our occipital areas because, again, the occipital cortex is responsible for vision. So it makes sense that there's some left and right occipital activity there, which is specifically blocking out things. And something that's also very, very interesting. Um, I kind of expected this and I saw it coming, but I still find it to be very interesting. I also saw a right cerebellar peak. And that's the cerebellum, which is also called the little brain, which is the part of the brain that lies under the cerebral cortex. It's, it it's, contains a lot of uh, neural folds and, and a lot of different neurons, but it, it's much smaller. And we, when, when we think of cerebellum, we mostly think of motion and planning of motion. But in this case, with the verbal working memory task, I also saw some cerebellar activity. And this is actually supported by the literature. 
And it's very, very interesting. The cerebellum is a fascinating part of the brain um, because, believe it or not, the cerebellum is really connected to every single part of the brain. There's a book that I was reading a few weeks ago called Brain and Music, which said that because the cerebellum is connected with our limbic system, with our prefrontal, system, with our prefrontal uh, cortex, it's actually also responsible for emotions. And in this case, the right cerebellum is connected with a lot of the left hemisphere areas in our brain that are responsible for language. So the fact that we saw some sort of right cerebellar, cerebellar activity is fascinating, and it really suggests to us that the right cerebellar is so important for helping us you know, suppress and inhibit that, um, that left lateralized area that are responsible for verbal processing. So I thought that was very interesting, and I definitely want to do some more analysis into that. Right, so that's extracting peak voxels and uh, where, where I found specific brain areas that are responsible for verbal working memory. So what are the next steps? Well, I want to do something called virtual sensor analysis. And what this means is that I'm going to go into these peak voxels that I've identified and extract something called a virtual sensor. So basically, if we place an MEG sensor at that specific voxel, what would that sensor give us? And this allows us to get a very accurate depiction of the exact neural activity that's occurring at that voxel. Remember, the, the sensors for an MEG are placed on the outside of our brain. They're, they're not specifically like inside our brain, of course. So by doing a virtual sensor analysis, we get a much more accurate representation of the neural activity that's occurring at these voxels, at these peak voxels. And something that's novel that I'm doing that I don't think anybody has really done with a verbal working memory before is something called a whole brain correlation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to plot uh, regressions at every single voxel of the brain between accuracy and pseudo t. So accuracy, of course, just means how well they did the, uh, the working memory task. And pseudo t, as we talked about last time, a pseudo t just is a numerical representation for how active a particular region of the brain was at stimulus relative to baseline. So I want to plot the pseudo t on the x-axis and accuracy on the right axis, uh, on the y-axis, and seeing how there, there's some sort of correlation there. I'm going to specifically do that at every voxel between the left stimulation, right stimulation, and sham. And then I'm going to do a statistical test called the interaction test, and that's going to allow me basically to compare the differences and the slopes of the linear regression. So let's say, for example, that this is completely hypothetical. I have no idea if this is actually true or not. But let's say that for this right superior frontal area, which is very curious, let's say that with that, we saw a positive correlation between accuracy and pseudo-t. So as pseudo-t increased, accuracy also increased. Let's say there's a positive correlation for uh, left simulation. But for right simulation, maybe there's a negative correlation. Maybe as pseudo-t increases, accuracy actually decreases. Well, an interaction test will allow us to determine that difference. It will allow us to determine how significant, statistically significant, that difference in the slope of the linear regression is. And that allows us to see, for example, whether one condition has a negative correlation and one, cor and one condition has a positive correlation. So I think the next steps that I can take with uh, my data, specifically with peak voxels and virtual sensors, is it's very, very interesting. And I hope to identify and explain really 
why these specific areas, specifically the right hemisphere areas, are seeing such a difference, are, are so prominent in activity. And hopefully I can reveal how right-dominated areas really interact with the left hemisphere areas to explain how verbal working memory really, really works. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.